0: This is Ian Harvey, Tokyo U.S. brand manager. I'm here with Muffy Ritz. Muffy was on the U.S. ski team from 1982 to 1984. She's the longest team member of Team Rossignol, and she's been a member of Team Rossignol for a few decades. She's a two-time American Birkebeiner champion. She did the famous uh, road race, race across America, and has the second fastest time and average speed in the history of the women's field. Um, she also participated in the Eco Challenge at a very high level. Muffy was a junior coach at Green Mountain Valley School and also for Sun Valley for many years. She's a founder of the Vamps, the largest all-women's masters Nordic ski co- program in the country. She's a legendary at ski racing, at adventuring, at squeezing every bit of uh, out of life. Um, she's a legendary athlete in personality and person. And a true privilege for me to do this interview with, so thank you very much for being here, Muffy thanks, Ian. This is great <laughs> yeah for me too okay, so um, let 's start off with how and when you started Nordic ski racing, please
1: okay, well, when I was at Colorado Rocky Mountain School as a high school student, I dabbled in touring, um, but I hated it. I really hated it. I was an alpine racer, so Nordic skiing was not fun and and I actually smoked cigarettes back then, and uh, it was really tough to get out there on Nordic skis. So um, yeah, I've I've quit since, don't worry about that. Um, But really how I started was at University of Colorado in 1978 as a walk-on, and I just thought I'd try something brand new. And um, I had no idea how to ski um, Nordic. I learned on roller skis that year, and then my coach, Guy Thibodeau, said, um, I want you to follow the Norwegians for three weeks and nobody's gonna give you any instruction whatsoever. You're just gonna follow them. And I thrashed and trashed behind those Norwegians for three weeks. And by the end, um, I could ski. I mean, it was this amazing transformation in three weeks from zero to, to actually being pretty proficient. And by the end of that year, I was um, second on the CU ski team. So second best skier on the team. (laughs) That's
0: amazing. Those three weeks, just for clarification, that was on roller skis?
1: Well, I started on roller skis. That's how um, Guy Thibodeau put me on roller skis. And I ended up falling more times than you even know, um, because I didn't know how to ski. And then that transferred right into skiing. And then I just loved the pain of the sport. I loved suffering. I loved... Um, knowing that if I could hurt a little more and not give into the pain, I could maybe beat people and it actually worked. And I still carry that through to this day, but I don't enjoy the pain quite as much.
0: (laughs) So there's the pain that you incur from, let's say, day in, day out training, et cetera. But there's also a pain that I absolutely love as well, which I associate with kind of like living, you know, like breathing really hard, going anaerobic. Yeah. I actually love going anaerobic. It it makes me feel alive and vibrant. Is,
1: is yeah. Oh, I,
0: I love it too.
1: Um, my only issue now is that I had the coronavirus and um um it sort of affected my lungs. So um I'm not quite able to get into the higher levels these days. And when I do, it hurts and I have to back off. So that's how it is.
0: Ah. I hope that changes for you quickly. or Me soon. Too. I hope I know, so. I know it's been a while already because you, you got the virus last spring. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. whoa, that's, a, that's been a while. Uh, I'm just
1: getting my smell back now. And that's been oh. over six months.
0: Man. So. so you made All-American fourth at NCAAs at CU. hmm And you made this uh, US ski team from 82 to 84. 81 to 84, yeah. I'm sorry? 81 to 84. 81 to 84 so that's a that's amazing. you must be very talented inherently, or just a very hard worker and gritty as well as talented to have picked it up that quickly yeah, I think well, I was an alpine skier, so I had that
1: going for me Alpine racer, and <clears throat> I also just loved getting out there and running and being strong and I used to when I was like eight years old, I used to just drop and do push ups in my room, mm. so that 's kind of a weird for an eight year old but um I don't know. I just love the. I'm very competitive, and so that drives me probably further than most anything than the talent or
0: the whatever the hard work. It's just being competitive. I want to win. <laughs> and you've done that more times than uh, than anyone can count. I think.
1: Uh, I don't know about that.
0: <laughs> so you coached juniors throughout the '80s and '90s at Green Mountain Valley School, and then later with Sun Valley when I first met you was I think 1985 and you were coaching for GMBS. Mm -hmm. Um, Since then you've coached masters athletes in Sun Valley for decades. What is it about coaching that you enjoy so much?
1: Um, And I'm speaking from like, even this week, I'm going to start coaching the vamps. And um, so what I love about it, is pushing people to do things that they don't think they can do. And I'll say, well, why not? And they, if I'm going to tell them, you're going to go hike up this hill as hard as you can, and we're going to put a little timer on you. And they're like, well, I don't know if I can make it up. And I'm like, well, let's give it a try. And they do. And then suddenly their confidence level is one notch up. And from there, I've got them hooked. And they can then go on to further themselves so it's been good
0: yeah I think that's one of the most inspiring experiences a person can have and to facilitate that is also very inspiring as a coach Mm -hmm. but to experience I don't think you can do something and then you're able to do it it's empowering and inspiring and Um, emboldening and then next thing you know you're doing even you're doing twice as much as you ever thought you could and and more and more and it yields such incredible growth not only confidence but it's so empowering Mm -hmm. Um, so I I know what you're talking about how much how rewarding that must be for you to introduce new limits to so many people
1: yeah and a lot of these people are you know beginners and um, you know we're not talking about high-end skiers these are beginners or middle-of-the-road skiers Um, A lot of people have never been athletes, and I call them athletes. They're all my athletes. And that right away gives them like, oh, I'm an athlete, and you're my coach. I have a coach. And so right away, they've got some confidence. And it's amazing when people step outside of their normal lives and gain some confidence what it does to their self-esteem. And I think that could be why maps has been so popular these all these
0: years, 24 years. Sure. Um, you also were coaching juniors while you were one of the top skiers in the country. When I met you, you were coaching, and you won the Birkebeiner that year and the next year. So right. that says something as well about maybe who you are a little bit and liking to, you know, your values a little bit, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I like, you know, I, I trained – I coached the kids at Green Mountain Valley School, but I also trained with them when I didn't need to be actually coaching them technique. And I liked to push them. And the guys pushed me and I pushed them and the girls. And, you know, um, we all kind of got in shape together and raced well together. Um, and I loved seeing my athletes do well in races because I knew the feeling just so well, what it felt like. Um, I, I loved seeing success on their faces, whether they won or lost or whatever. So, yeah, it's just all part of the program.
0: (laughs) Like I said, I met you in 85 and you made an impression on me. We talked a few times because we had mutual friends, but we didn't have a, a, you know, a reason to hang out or anything. Obviously I was a kid and, Mm -hmm. but even in 1985 and the, the contact that we had, um, you made an impression on me and i think the the biggest impression you made on me was because of your demeanor always having fun always positive enjoying every minute of it and that spirit you're one of a few people that showed me how fun skiing was and how enjoyable no matter how cold it is no matter what the conditions i've never forgotten that and i've always enjoyed that about you oh, <laughs> that's great um i i still have that attitude
1: you know there's a lot of people that say how do you just keep going? And, you know, you've had all these setbacks, which we can talk about later, but um, I don't know. It's just, why not be having fun? You've got a choice. Every day you wake up in the morning, you can be bummed out about what's going on in the world, or you can look outside and say, guess what? Today's going to be a good day and we're going to make the most
0: of it. So that's a lot easier to do. (laughs) I, I completely agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And you've been living that. So yeah. thank you. Okay, getting back, uh, you've been an elite ski racer for many decades, both as a member of the U.S. Ski Team and as the uh, member of the Roselind Marathon Team, and also as an elite masters racer with Roselind. Do you have a favorite race experience that you would like to tell us about?
1: Yeah, um, I would say it was in 1985 when I won the Birkebeiner for the first time. I'd been racing the Birkebeiner probably five years in a row, and was always in the top five maybe but this year was the first year of skating and um, 1985 and I was still a classic skier I did not skate and I asked John Ruger who was my coach what wax should I use and he said you're not waxing you're gonna you're gonna go waxless and skate and I said I don't know how and he goes well you figure it out during the race and so I the morning of the race I had my skis and I had the kick zone bare ready for my I remember it was Rex blue clister covered with Rex purple clister. And I had those two clisters ready to put on. And I said, nope, I'm not gonna do it. And I threw them into the woods. And I got on those skis, the gun went off and I followed Beth Paxson, who had been a former Olympian and fellow Rosie Marathon team member. So I followed her step for step, whatever she did. And I think we were doing V1 right but it wasn't called V1, it was called skating. Yeah. So I, I mimicked her all the way. And then we got to about 40K and I could tell she was slowing down or she was hurting because I was asking her questions and she was only doing grunts for answers. And um, So she stopped at an aid station at 40. And I, I really needed water too, but I said, this is my chance. And I went around her. She was in first and I was in second at the time. I went around her and just blew past her and did everything I could remember on how to skate. And I got to that finish line first, won the Berkebiner, first year skating, had no clue what I was doing. And let's see, Beth came in 18 seconds later with just uh, this amazement on her face. Like, how did this rookie, who's never skated a step in her life, beat me? (laughs) So that was really fun to win the Berkebiner that year. I and bet. John Kruger was ecstatic. He just, yeah, loved that.
0: And you did win it the next year as well, but um, yeah. the, the that obviously the first victory I'm sure was very special for you, but also the circumstances. I remember the first race that I skated with no wax. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the kind of thing like you were telling you go, and right. um, it was so, I don't know, liberating to yeah. actually have achieved it afterwards. And, and I did really well, much better than I ever thought I would. Yeah. Um, the year before we were waxing half the ski, you know, half the, half the kick zone, kind of cheating and, and you know, that.
1: Or you did, or also,
0: well, I remember I did a
1: lot of marathon skate. Yeah. I won exactly. the, the Yellowstone rendezvous the year before by marathon skating when everybody lost their wax for the second lap of the 50K. And I just thought, no, I'm not going to spend the time waxing. I'm just going to do that thing where you push your foot out. (laughs) And I ended up winning by 20 minutes. And I'm like, wow, there's something to this. (laughs) But I've never taken the wax off my skis. So the Berkebeiner was a full-on experiment. And skating was what I loved
0: to do. Yeah. That's thrilling, though. Uh, Trying that. And, of course, sometimes it blew up in your face. Did you ever have a race where you skated during that transitional period? and it blew up in your face, like uh, with me, some of the races, the tracks were narrower, you know, the, the piston bully wasn't wide enough, Oh and yeah, you that's sad. tips yeah. and powder constantly, and or mm-hmm. of a soft track also made it very difficult to climb oftentimes. Yeah,
1: I didn't, no, I can't even recall, no, I just, I don't know, just skated, maybe I have a narrower V, I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I had a bunch of races during that transitional year where I was skating in the classic skiers won, and then other races where the skaters won, and and it had a lot to do with the conditions and how wide the track was. Back in yeah. New England, you know, skiing at Putney or Stratton, they had some very narrow trails where you were catching your tip, and even would break your tip sometimes. Yeah. Skating, uh, and it was it was a much of a more of a challenge than skiing in a in a wide marathon course. You know. Right. And, no, it's yeah. I really didn't have any problem. I just I felt like I went from.
1: Classic skiing to skating and then probably didn't classic again for, it felt like years yeah. until they separated the skate from the classic races. Yeah. And then we had to do some more classic skiing. But yeah. I think I just totally ate that hook, line, and sinker and skated on and off into the sunset. Yeah.
0: You know, whatever. <laughs> so... There are many, many things about, that, about you that I find that are unique. One thing is, despite being a very serious, capable, well-trained, and savvy, and as you pointed out, very competitive athlete, pretty much anywhere you are at and in any situation, there's a party of sorts going on of which you are always the life of. <laughs> <laughs> you are always having a blast. Please tell us about your life philosophy. Oh, let's see, life philosophy. Well,
1: it's like I said before, when you wake up in the morning, you have a choice, you know, to be positive. And I always, I I think part of it's, I'm a Leo and Leos love the spotlight. Okay. And um, I never really realized that until people started listening to me. Like when I was the head honcho of the vamps, when I started the vamps, these women all gravitated towards me. And I thought, well, I have to present a really good front. And so I always just was upbeat. And then I loved having, um, making them realize that they can have fun. And so wherever I am, I just, I don't know what it is. I, I like to attract fun, um, excitement, creativity, being a little mischievous and doing things that people feel like a kid again. And, you know, I just get silly. I don't know, that's what would be my philosophy. And also, the one thing I thought of was gather no moss. You know, that was my little mantra. Um, I don't want to stop. I just want to, if I'm sort of sedentary and not literally, but just my mind goes sedentary, I've got to start thinking, okay, what's the next thing? I've got to get going on that. Maybe it's a little trip I'm going to take with my camper or something,
0: but um,
1: gather no moss.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I like that, of course. Um, you haven't spoken about this directly when, in, this, in that answer you just gave, but it's clearly your core DNA, and that is you regularly do things that are incredibly hard and adventurous. So talk about that. There's something in you that I also share that is it, it kind of drives you to do crazy, adventurous, some super difficult things that are obviously very rewarding normally. Right, right.
1: Well, it's kind of my philosophy, too, with the vamps of um, having people do things they don't think they can do. And that has to come from somewhere. So it comes from my own DNA. Like, for example, the race across America, that is a 3000 mile bike race nonstop from coast to coast. I didn't think I could make it. I really didn't think I could go through a night without sleeping and keep riding my bike. Um, I ended up doing three race across Americas and uh, find out found out that what I thought was impossible is actually possible. And another example would be Eco Challenge. I mean, all these people do Eco Challenge. And I thought, why not? There's one in Morocco. And I got on a team, Team Idaho. And we ended up riding camels across the desert and doing all sorts of things for eight long days of sleepless nights and um, I found out halfway through or maybe two days in, well, this isn't that bad. I can do this. And so everything you do raises the bar of what you think you can do. So I look back on the race across America, especially, and I think if I can do that, I can do just about anything because that was by far the hardest mental and physical um, event I have ever done. And people look at me and go, you did it three times. Right. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Cause I had to win,
0: but I never did. So. Yeah. How many miles were you averaging per day? Um, my
1: second year 1995 was my best year and I averaged 313 miles a day, um, with an average speed of 13.1 and that includes all your sleeping that that includes everything you know this clock never
0: stops right right which is amazing of course just ridiculously amazing i can't even fathom it how many hours of sleep the the ram took you approximately nine days
1: yeah right nine days six hours 32
0: minutes (laughs) exactly Um, you remember
1: that year was (laughs) 904 so um she shauna is my competitor Uh, she has the fastest time in the world and I have the second fastest time. And people have been close, but they haven't gotten there yet. Um, So I slept um, average three hours a night, but the first night and the last night was virtually no sleep. So probably six nights, three hours, 18 hours of sleep in nine
0: days. And on top of that, riding over 300 miles a day.
1: Hundred thirteen miles a day, and yeah, mm-hmm,
0: yeah. And I assume you generally eat while you were riding.
1: Yeah, you drink, you drink it out of bottles. But I, I didn't like all that liquid stuff that much. So I liked um, subway sandwiches. I had turkey roll ups, lots of fruit, um, probably about eight thousand calories a day. And I drank a lot of Ensure because they sponsored the race, and um, I thought, well, sure, I'll try and Insure. And I sort of became the spokesman for Ensure because I drank so much Ensure across the country. And You could get, you know, caramel and chocolate and vanilla and strawberry and mint and maple. And, and so I was like, oh, this is great. This is just like having a milkshake, you know, 20 times a day.
0: <laughs> so there were times in my career with the Marine Corps that I went, uh, I had very bad sleep deprivation. I'm really not good at that. Um, I'll fall asleep standing, I'll fall asleep driving, I'll, I would not want to fall asleep on a bicycle. And I know I would be falling asleep. That must have been hellacious.
1: It was the hardest part of the whole thing. Um, All you want to do is sleep. That's, you know, you don't care about really anything else but sleeping. But um, it's when you're on a bike, you can't sleep because you will crash. And what happened to my brain, and I was always racing, always wanted to beat Shauna. And so I had this competitive drive. And so I started hallucinating out of my mind. And I still can look at those hallucinations in my brain right now. And they're just as vivid as they were in 93, 95, and 97. Um, Most people didn't have the vivid hallucinations that I had. Um, there were hundred foot farmers tipping their hats and saying, hello, Muffy. And there were, I was riding along in Texas. I remember dachshunds would pop up, their little heads would pop up and I'd run them over. Um, and then another dachshund would pop up and I'd run it over. And, um, I like dachshunds. I don't know why I was running over dachshunds, but these hallucinations would happen when I was the most sleep deprived and they were scary, and I all I wanted to do was stop. But um, I don't know, I was so competitive, I just, I had to roll through those things, and my crew wouldn't even let me stop when I was
0: hallucinating. <laughs> I Most of my sleep deprivation episodes have been, like I said, in the military where mm-hmm. you're not moving. If I'm moving, I, I, I don't feel it as bad, but if I'm just standing there, it's so difficult and so painful I get this nausea and it's, it's actual uh, constant pain just standing there trying to stay awake. It's, it's horrible. Um, But on a bike, when you're moving or hiking or skiing or whatever, um, obviously have more stimulus, but at the same time, I imagine when you crash, you crash, literally would crash on the bike, but you'd crash hard because you're moving. So your head just drops and you're, you go from being awake to sleeping and unconscious basically, huh? I'd be asleep. Once they,
1: I'd go uh, to a hotel, we'd go to hotels to sleep at night for three hours, or just sometimes on the side of the road with a massage table, and I would be asleep within 10 seconds about, because I'd start massaging my feet first, and you know, when you get your feet massaged, you're gone, and it'd be 10 to 20 seconds, I'd be out, and then three hours later, they'd have the coffee, I'd smell the coffee, and... That would wake me up and I'd realize it was time to get on the bike. Well, there goes my phone. Sorry. Uh-oh. Anyway. Are you still there, Ian? Yeah, yeah, all good. I don't okay there we are. Sorry, my phone rang. Um, I'd smell the coffee and I'd just start crying because I knew I had to get back on the bike. Wow. Um, but yeah, I'd be asleep in a second. And I remember actually in one of my eco challenges, um, no, it was called Southern Traverse down in in New Zealand. It was like an eco challenge. And the head girl, the girl that was in charge of our team told me how to sleep while walking. So what you do is you put your arm on the shoulder of the person in front of you and you close your eyes and walk. And I actually got about 20 minutes of sleep one night doing that. I just slept while I walked with my hand on her shoulder. It was bizarre, but you can't do that in the race across America. You're on a
0: bicycle by yourself. So here's a question for you. When you're so sleep deprived and pushing through it like that, when you finally get to be able to sleep, did you ever, or do you ever wake up thinking that you fell asleep while you were on the bike? Uh,
1: no, not really, no but I did sleep a lot after I got off the bike, but the crew, my race crew after the race was over would wake up in the middle of the night and they would say, where's Muffy? Where's Muffy? we got to get her up. we got to get her up. Oh, you know, but I, I never woke up like that and had those feelings. No.
0: Welcome to my world. That's me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what it is, but I think i pushed so hard through so many things through fatigue. I, I have a hard time turning it off. So I go to sleep yeah. and then, my subconscious wakes me up and I'm like, oh, you're falling asleep uh, yeah. driving, you're falling asleep riding your bike, you you know. Yeah. No, yeah. I
1: didn't have that. You're, I'm you're, glad you mm-hmm. haven't
0: had to deal with it.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the brain plays some pretty hard, uh, ugly tricks on you when you mess with it.
1: Oh, yeah,
0: it does. <laughs> and we've messed with our brains over the years pretty yeah. pretty significantly in these types of events. Right. So, um, you are extremely strong and fit. And I know, you, I know you do a lot of strength work. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about What works so well for you? Uh,
1: Sort of slacked a little bit this year in strength, but um, I've been doing strength since college, probably a couple days a week in the gym. And um, uh, one thing, though, that's really been big for me is uh, rehab strength. So I've had lots of surgeries, and after every surgery, I've had to do three to four months of rehab. And I just turned that into these hardcore strength sessions. And I've maintained my fitness and strength for the past 30 years um, without really having any dips, even though I've had four joint replacements and 11 surgeries. I've never really hit a bottom because I think I've maintained the high level. Um, But all the strength workouts, if they're not... Um, targeted towards knees or hips or shoulders. They're targeted towards Nordic ski training. Well, um, oh,
0: you do a lot of TRX, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I was doing TRX for several years and that's been really helpful, really good. Now I've just gotten into a new thing. I sort of took off some time off the strength because I didn't want to go in the gym. So I've been swimming and I'm not a good swimmer. I have done the Hawaii Ironman Um, I did two Ironmans and I was really pathetic in the swim. Um, So I've been swimming a couple days a week and I probably swim half of what a good swimmer swims. But I feel pretty confident, you know, about like, okay, I'm getting my arms, my shoulders and my back and my neck and my, even my fingers. And um, I've really enjoyed having a new, sort of a new activity to do that I'm bad at. And um, I won't say I'm bad. I can, I can float and stuff. But, but um, it's challenging. And here we go again. I love that competitiveness and that challenge. So I'll probably continue to swim throughout the fall and maybe even into the winter to keep my joints fluid.
0: You know? So what you just said, first off, have you ever gotten a compliment, which is kind of a backhanded compliment, but I used to get this all the time when I swam. I'd come out, i get out of the pool, and a few people would just be staring at me and they'd finally say, you must be so strong. And what they mean is you suck at swimming so bad and you were <laughs> moving along pretty good and the water was all, you know, huge wake yeah. behind you. You must be really damn strong. Have you ever gotten yeah. a mid like that? Well, I've had, I, I actually um, took a
1: swimming lesson before the Ironman and I, a really good swimmer. She was a long distance swimmer. And after the lesson, she said, you know, can you just not mention that I was your teacher Um, (laughs) because you really are not a very good swimmer and I didn't help you very much. And I really don't want your swimming to be associated with me. Like, Oh, okay. Well, that's fine. So that was about the worst thing I've had with my swimming. But every time I swim people that are better always give me a little tip. They're like, Hey, Muffy, even 94 year old Charlie French says, you know, you should put your head down a little more. You know, and look down in the pool. Don't look up so much because you're arching your back. And um, so, even a 94 year old's giving me some help.
0: <laughs> well, he's one person I would listen to absolutely. Oh yeah. Oh
1: you yeah. You should interview Charlie. He'd be a good one.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, is there a training principle that has served you well over the years? Do you have a piece of general advice? for skiers listening?
1: Yeah, I, I've, ever since I started racing as a college student at CU, um, it's been drilled into my head, kind of a, a general plan when I train. And I, I can't say I'm very specific and regimented. In fact, I'm not. But I do make sure I have the right ingredients. It's just like making chocolate chip cookies. You gotta have all the right ingredients. Maybe they go in in different orders. Uh, but don't over-bake those cookies, so don't overtrain. But I always try to get in like two hard workouts in a week. I try to do one long workout in a week, a couple moderate skis or workouts, and a couple strength workouts. And I, it's worked for me all these years, and I make it simple. Um, and I don't wake up in the morning and go, I have to be on skis at nine o'clock doing this workout. If I feel good, I'll do it. If I don't, I won't do it. So um, um, I know, Ian, you are a military guy. You probably are very
0: regimented in what you do.
1: I'm probably the
0: opposite. Yeah, I think we've got a lot in common, actually. Um, I'm I'm of the opinion that skiing and being outdoors is something that's supposed to bring balance to my life and is supposed to make me happy. You know, it's what I love to do. And so if I don't feel like doing it, which for both of us would be extremely rare, I don't think it's healthy for me to do because I want it to continue to be a very happy Mm -hmm. source of pleasure in my life, you know? So I I basically am not, I don't have that kind of regimented attitude about it. It's something Mm -hmm. that is a a source of pleasure for me enjoyment.
1: And even being in the military, like that must have, you know you had to be very regimented there, so you've you've sort of morphed a little bit into a uh easier routine, like you're not quite so
0: structured I'm right? a little funny it's like i'm a, I'm kind of a i like to think for myself and you know kind of do my own thing like mm-hmm. find my own path. you know what we have a lot in common there um mm-hmm. So joining the military seemed like a strange course of action. But the way I look at it, when I signed up for the military, I chose that path.
1: Yeah. And
0: that was my, you know, and so when I was there, I had a good attitude and I always had a smile on my face and people were telling me to start scowling in the, mil- in the Marine Corps. You're not supposed to be smiling. You're supposed to be scowling, you know. Um, and but I was happy and enjoyed what I was doing and it was good. But I think it's because I, I knew that it was my choice to do it. I signed up for it, and so you know I made the best of it, mm-hmm. but when it comes to outdoor and pretty much everything else i'm yeah i mean i i i'm no i I like working hard, I like adversity you know like you tough things, but I don't approach it with a military type attitude mm-hmm. um, I don't think anyway, I think it's more of a this is something I love to do, so I'm going to go out and do it and if it's tough, then well, great, it'll be even more rewarding, you know.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like you and I are both um, like you've you've mentioned, you know, you like excitement and you're a positive person. You bring positivity into a room. I feel like you and I are both sort of like that. When I look at you, I see nothing but, oh, there's Ian. He is a great guy. He's positive. I know I'm going to have fun talking to him when I see him three or four times a year. You know, you just bring a light into the room. And I think people have told me that too, so. Thank
0: you. That's exactly what I feel when I have contact with you. And I think that's one reason why perhaps I always look for you. You know, obviously we have a long history, but I mean, uh, if I know you're anywhere near me, I'm gonna go look for you and, and you know, partake a little bit of the Muffy spirit because I love having contact with you and I your spirit feeds my spirit like it, I resonate you resonate with me very much so yeah I right. get you you know I really get you and enjoy sure. you. the e- nuance, e- the, e- nuance e- yeah. the little things you know mm-hmm. so let's see um, thank you for those answers let's talk about vamps for a second so it's the biggest master's women's nordic ski program in the country it currently has 80 to 100 members there are some eight to 15 coaches and this is from the Ketchum, Idaho area, which does not have a large population base to draw from. There is uh, the Dons, which is there's some men that are part of this organization as well, kind of a parallel organization. But um, tell us, please, about the genesis of the name, Vamps. That's kind of a funny story and a little bit about its success. Uh, let's
1: see. We, I started in 1996 when I, um, this girl wanted me to coach her two days a week all winter long. And I thought, oh boy, I, I don't have that much to say. What are, you know, two days a week. So I told her to get a group together and we had about four to six people the first year in 96. And um, I taught them two days a week. Then I said, if you guys have any friends for next year, let me know. Well, the next year, suddenly it was 40. And I had to hire some friends of mine, Jen Douglas, Laura Wilson, um, some former Um, Olympians and U.S. Ski Team skiers. So um, we needed a name because it was called Ladies' Clinic. That didn't sound good. That was terrible. So um, we just started putting together some acronyms. And there were all sorts of things from Ladies in Nordic Skiing, Lins, or Ladies in Muffy's Programs, LIMPS. Um, no ladies and buffy's programs lamps and you know i mean so one of the women was uh she was swedish osa and she always said women as women so then i went women let's use a v instead of a w so we became women and muffys programs and that was vamps so that's the beginning of it there's some other more x rated versions, but I, I, I don't know if I'll say those.
0: <laughs> okay, that's cool. So, you mentioned earlier you've had eight, 11 major surgeries, including four joint replacements. Mm-hmm. Can you give, uh, and you've come out of them with amazing success, as you alluded to, but I've seen it as well. Can you give any tips on how to go through something like that and, and not uh, have to start from zero necessarily?
1: Yeah. Well, I've already said, you know, how being strong, just maintaining your strength is is huge. But um, it's all about the attitude and about um, just knowing the, the confidence that you're going to get back to where you were prior to your issues. And with enough um, confidence, enthusiasm, positivity, um, you find that you, you supersede the, the uh, surgery and you get above it. Um, lots of rehab, lots of pain. Um, not, not like horrible pain, but just the rehab pain. You know, It's not that pleasant. Um, but I always knew that I was gonna get out of this uh, stronger than I went in. And um, I feel like I never took a dip like all my friends would go, Oh good. She's having another knee replacement. We're going to we get the upper hand. Now we're going to be able to beat her this time. And I'd get into rehab and get stronger and stronger. And I'd still go in a race and still be ahead of them. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, but it's, it's all attitude. I, I have you know, and good PTs, good doctors, good equipment, things like that. Um, But I have found that these surgeries have made me a much more tolerant person, um, more uh, hard-willed, kind of stronger in my brain. Um, I've gone to the bottom a few times mentally where I'm just so depressed that I'm not out there doing the fun stuff, but knowing that I will be if I just do this workout and do this rehab. so. I don't know, and, and I have to say, I've had, okay, two knees, a hip and a shoulder. I've had bunion surgeries, I've had, uh, oh, I don't know, a bunch of other stuff. I can't even remember at this point.
0: Sure, shoulders.
1: But, um, lots, and what?
0: Shoulder injuries, I imagine? From- well,
1: I've had one replacement and yeah. three surgeries, okay.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: but I get phone calls all the time from people that are either getting a hip replaced, a knee replaced, or a shoulder replaced because they know that my outcome has been so successful. And so they all are like, well, what did you do? Tell me your whole program. Who's your doctor? Who's your PT? Um, How long did it take? What can I expect? And, you know, I can give them my story, but everybody is different. And one thing I always say to them is it's your attitude. You know, you can do all the nuts and bolts like I did, but unless you have the good attitude that makes you realize you're going to get well, and you're going to be stronger. You won't get there, you know, or it'll take a lot longer or you'll have problems. So I love talking to people on the phone about these surgeries, believe it or not.
0: (laughs) Super. Yeah. So almost in the same line, um, do you have any tips for avoiding sickness? Staying healthy is great Um, for us, you know?
1: Yeah, and I do get bronchitis during the winter quite frequently, well, about every other year. But the reason I get it are stupid things I do. One year, I uh, forgot to change my shirt at the Prairie Creek Classic. And I got chilled and I went and skied with some of the vamps afterwards. And I think I'd run myself down after the race. I didn't prepare well afterwards. The afterwards is just as important as the before. And I got bronchitis for six weeks after that. Um, I would say really being careful when you do go hard in any sport. Be careful what you do afterwards. Um, Hydrate. Change your clothing. Um, Don't go out the next day and hammer yourself into the ground if you did it the day before. Um, And if you feel like you're getting unmotivated, because of X, Y, or Z, you may be overtrained. And some of those things will lead to sickness as well. Or maybe sickness leads to a bad attitude. So they're all kind of combined yeah. in there.
0: Mm-hmm. So the changing your shirt and trying to avoid getting a chill, it's so tempting sometimes if you're skiing 10, 5, 15 minutes from your house, just mm-hmm. kind of be like, ah. You know, I'll just go home and jump in the shower. I'm going to need to change. That's tempting, but it's basically always a mistake, huh? especially in the winter.
1: Yeah, I think it's a big mistake. Um, I'm lucky. I don't sweat very much. But um, so there are a lot of times in VAMPS workouts, I don't need to change my shirt. But definitely after a hard workout, intervals, races, time trials, I would say changing your shirt and for women, jog bra, is so important because you don't realize you're getting chilled until you already are there. And also hydrating really well afterwards. That's, I, I swear, I think water, and I'm not a very good water drinker, so it's hard for me, but drinking enough water, maybe with electrolytes, will also ward off sickness as well. I swear, water is the universal, universal get well pill. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. So especially after a race because, or or something hard, your immune system is suppressed mm-hmm. because you've been working so hard and then you let yourself get a chill. It's so easy for you to succumb to that, whatever it, you've been exposed to a virus, bacterial infection. And so I I definitely believe in, it's it's critical for me to change my shirt as well as I always put a dry hat on afterward. afterwards. Right. Yeah. Right. And usually I don't just change my shirt, but I put a jacket on on top of that shirt. So I I go to the workout with a bag, with a dry shirt, a wicking type shirt, as well as a, a jacket and a dry hat, and that's right. certainly well. But so thanks for highlighting that. I think that's really important, as well as hydrating. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm, super. Good. So as you know, I'm the Toco Glove designer. I've been doing that for a long time, and I like to hear from people what their what their favorite glove model is and why.
1: Well, my old glove favorite was the Windstopper, and I love that. Uh, but that's no longer around. So I've switched. Let me get the name of this one. I, I don't always know the names. I just know the glove really well. It's called the Winter Rider. And I remember Ian asking you, because I started doing some fat biking in the winter, what would be good gloves for you know riding my fat bike? And, and you sent me a pair of um, Winter Rider gloves. Well, those have become my favorite gloves. And I don't just use them for riding fat bikes, but I use them for Nordic from the time I go to West Yellowstone or maybe Silver Star in November all the way through until April skiing. Um, I don't switch out gloves. I don't put on lighter gloves and heavier gloves. I just wear the winter riders almost all the time. Um, I don't know. I just... I love those gloves and I've got, I think two or three pairs now, and I keep them separate from all the other gloves so that they don't get ruined or lost or whatever. So, uh, but I've been wearing Toco. How long I've been wearing Toco gloves? Um, 30 years, 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Long time. And you always know what size I wear. Yep. You know, I'm a size seven. You're or, size
0: seven. Yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep. So my wife has chronically cold hands and she wears the winter riders all the time, except for when it's extremely cold. And then she wears the toasty thermal mittens. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'll wear the winter riders like you. It's almost every time she goes out unless it's really cold and then she puts those really warm mittens on. So right. what, your, your glove of choice resonates with me because that's my wife's always thanking me for making those gloves. I mean, you should see my glove drawer.
1: I have a, like a little pullout and it's all like assorted toco gloves, summer loss. You know, I, I put together whatever I've got. Um, they don't match all the time, except like I said, those winter riders are separate because they get a special place in my glove compartment. <laughs> Good. Cool. Yeah.
0: So here's a question I'm sure will be interesting to hear an answer for. And that is what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were 18?
1: Okay, well, and I think I looked at this as going, well, I didn't even start Nordic till I was 21. So that's when I started getting a little bit more of a brain. Um, Had I actually taken days off and slowed down a little bit, maybe I would have made that Olympic team in 1984 and 1988. I didn't realize you were supposed to take a day off. And I didn't realize you weren't supposed to go as hard as you could in every single workout um i just loved working out and i loved working out hard and so it didn't matter if i was racing or training i i went to almost my max every time nowadays it's um or probably for the past 20 years and what i tell my vamps too make sure you take a day off every week maybe two and make sure you go easy and make sure you're rested and boy if somebody told me that back when i was 21 and really said this is going to make the difference I might have listened to them, but I was exhausted at the uh, Lake Placid Olympic trials. And um, had I rested a little bit, uh, that 15-second deficit that I lost going on the team probably wouldn't have been there. Um, So that's what
0: I would have changed. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Okay,
1: well, um, yeah, I did smoke cigarettes for about five years um, in college and high school. But also um, I write down every single gas fill-up I've ever done in my cars. I have two cars, a mini countryman and a truck, pickup truck. Every time I go to the gas station, I have a little book and I write down uh, the date, the mileage, Um, the number of gallons, the miles per gallons, and the cost of the price of gas every single time. And people are like, why do you do this? And I don't know. I'm not an anal person by any means, but I'm very anal about that. And I get really bummed out if I miss a fill up, um, writing it down.
0: (laughs) So that's just, I don't know, I'll probably do it the rest of my life as long as I can it's fascinating. When did you start doing that? Did you do that the first time you had a vehicle and you had the, you know, what, what brought that practice?
1: Actually, I started doing it in my very first car was a Honda Accord in, I think it was probably 1976. And I just started writing down thousand mile markers. Like I had a little book when the car went to a thousand, I wrote down where I was, what I was doing. And, um, and I still continue to do that. That's, the one side of the book is the mileage, I mean, the um, gas fill-ups. The other side is the 1,000-mile markers. So um, uh, I've been doing it since 76,
0: I guess. It's a long time. I don't know what it is. Are you a, a person that likes to record things? Do you have a journal, for example?
1: Oh, yeah. I started keeping a journal
0: in 11th grade. And oh, in fact... A book based on your journal at some day, I would love I you. have a...
1: I, it's like a... Um, you know, there's, it's not a blank journal. It's like a, it's like a calendar, a weekly calendar. And I fill in on one side, my workouts and the other side is what I did that day. Just had lunch with so-and-so or whatever. Um, Since 11th grade, I've kept those little books. And the reason I could find out in the world masters, what, how many podiums I'd been on in the world masters, I just went last night, I went through Every year I'd gone to World Masters. I've done 10 of them. And I always write down what place I was in every race. So I started in 96 and I went through 94, 95, 95 was Canmore. And I just looked at how I placed in every single race from Canmore until last year. Um, Where was it last year? I forgot. In in Dolan in Norway. And so I came up with my whole list of podiums and places. Well, let's hear it. Okay. Well, I've had, um, I've only had two individual golds. Um, I've had 11 silvers and three, no, and seven bronzes. I'm always racing the same Russians and Finns, and we are exactly the same age. Every now and then I beat them, but um, pretty much they are, whether I 'm doing classic or skate, um, they're always there, and so for me to get first place is really difficult, and i 'm glad of that. It makes me push that much harder so i'm really proud of the eleven second places that I've had because they 've always been tight races and one of the one of the girls said to me, her name was Tatiana Ezepova from Russia, and she goes, "Why are you always?" place second you never win and I and I said well maybe it's because I always split my races between classic and skate whereas she is a pure skater and I don't want to be doing just one thing Mm -hmm. and so I'm I'm a little bit compromised um if I skated all the time maybe I get more first places or if I classic all the time maybe more first places but I don't so I'll take the seconds um, to be versatile.
0: But that sounds like 20 individual medals at World Masters, that's an okay. amazing all. Right, 20 in
1: 10 years,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely amazing. So that's, that's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So last question, you already mentioned this, but uh, uh, maybe you can add to it a little bit. Um, the mantra philosophy that you have about gathering no moss, obviously if a stone is not moving, it'll gather moss Mm -hmm. is this a a life philosophy or is it also a health philosophy the the physical therapists like to say motion is lotion yeah you know like it's good for your joints good for your body but I, i think you're also not a person that wants to stay stagnant
1: no well my brain is always going i mean it's constantly going and my body is going and people always say where do you get all that energy And um, it's it's not that I have more energy than anybody else. I just don't like to be sitting still, although I have been for the last hour, okay? And I love to drive, so that's a lot of sitting still. But it's more of a philosophy um, that you don't wanna get stagnant in your life. And always, even if you're doing the same job, like I've been doing VAMPS for 24 years, Every year, I get excited about what can we do that's new and exciting and and make sure that i'm not um, going to be doing the same thing and drag it on um, so gather no boss, it just feels right, and I look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and i you know she was a woman that I felt like she was always reaching for the next best thing in her life. And I love seeing her do her little workouts with her little weights and her planks and things like that. She gathered no moss until the day she died. Um, so I guess I'm sort of in that same philosophy.
0: Yeah. Behind you, there's a picture of an eagle soaring above with the mountain peaks with, with yeah. snow and so on. And Mount McKinley. That's Mount McKinley. McKinley. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, I think that personifies your personality, absolutely. That's you, you know? no thanks. (laughs) Pouring above in the mountains and taking it all in and adventuring, you know, that's not exactly, I think that's that's very much you, so. No, thanks, yeah. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much for doing this. Um, It's been my pleasure knowing you over the years and I'm looking forward to continuing to see you on a regular basis. Um, And I hope this has been an inspiring and informative uh, podcast and video for people to enjoy. So thanks again for doing this. I appreciate it very much.
1: Okay, thanks, Ian. And you're a great interviewer. Um, thank you for these fun questions. And um, I'm looking forward to ski season this year. So much.